This episode of Commons is brought to you by Paytm. With the Paytm Canada app, you can manage, track, and pay all of your bills through the app itself. And you can get up to 15% cash back on gift cards like Amazon. So download the Paytm Canada app or visit paytm.ca to sign up. Enter the promo code COMMONS and you will get $10 in Paytm cash that you can spend on any bill you need to pay. And this episode is also brought to you by Endy. Endy is a Canadian sleep brand that wants to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They'll ship the mattress to you in a box and you get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. To try it out, visit endy.ca, that's E-N-D-Y, and use the promo code COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. How do we get from a 14-year-old being placed in a youth facility for one month for throwing crab apples at a mailman to having her sentence extended for almost four years, most of it in isolation, eventually strangling herself to death while prison guards watch and videotape it? How do we get to that point? Well, Ashley Smith was placed in solitary confinement after disruptive behavior on her first day at the youth facility. Her initial one-month sentence would then last almost four years, almost entirely in solitary confinement. She died in prison in 2007. In 2013, a coroner's inquest decided her death wasn't a suicide at all. They called it a homicide, the result of a broken and indifferent prison system and orders from senior management that guards shouldn't intervene as long as she was still breathing. Ashley Smith's case and other cases have been galvanizing and mobilizing activists. And in 2018, two major legal decisions were made in Canada as a direct result of this action. These decisions are monumental, and it's time we unpack what this all means. Today on Commons, we bring you part one of a two-part series on solitary confinement in Canada. In this episode, you'll hear from Chris Jackal, a corrections officer who works in a max security prison, and Lisa Kerr, an assistant professor and prison lawyer. In part two of the series, we will bring you voices and stories from people that have experienced solitary confinement themselves. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. I'm Ryan McMahon. From Canada Land, this is Commons. Ryan, I missed you, buddy. You left me all alone and went to the Arctic. I missed you too. Actually, I've been in the Arctic for just about a month. And I have to say, I'm really looking forward to these interviews because I haven't heard them yet. And you conducted both of them. So thanks for picking up my slack. I think you'll find our two guests have very distinctive perspectives on the issue. Excellent. Let's get into the show. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Paytm. I have just screwed up my credit rating because I forgot to pay a bill for, for two and a half months. I don't know why I'm admitting that on the air, but I did. So congratulations, Ryan McMahon. You played yourself and you didn't need to. If I would have downloaded the Paytm app, perhaps I would have scheduled the payment to go out on time and I wouldn't be looking at my credit score with such regret. 
We all have bills. We pay our phone bills, our hydro bills. Some of us pay tuition. You can do all of that through the Paytm Canada app. Visit paytm.ca, sign up for your account, and start using Paytm to pay your bills on time. When you do so, you will get cash back. As you sign up with the promo code COMMONS, you'll get $10 in Paytm cash that you can spend to pay any bill you want. And here's something really great. Paytm rewards its users with up to 15% cash back on Canada's most popular brands like Tim Hortons, Amazon.ca, and Best Buy. So using Paytm is like getting paid to pay your bills. And that's a pretty good deal. This episode of Commons is also brought to you by Andy. Andy is a Canadian sleep brand that is changing the mattress industry. Now, Andy sent me a mattress, and I lost it immediately to my youngest daughter. She loves the thing. In fact, it's helping her get to school on time every day because she's having incredible sleeps. Those are her words. I made her write that down. So one thing my daughter said is she's loving the Andy Comfort Foam. There are millions of microscopic supportive air cells inside this mattress, and she's really, really digging it. They offer a free 100-night trial, and if you don't like the mattress, you send it back to Andy, and they will donate it to a charity. If all of that sounds good to you, use the promo code COMMONS at checkout, and you'll get $50 off your mattress with Andy at andy.ca. D, what does being in a solitary confinement cell actually look like? Like, how do we, how, how do we paint that picture? Well, it does vary from prison to prison, but generally speaking, at least in Ontario, it means being in a very small concrete room, maybe about five square meters, like six by nine feet. And solitary confinement means you are being confined in that cell with very little human interaction. You might interact with someone through a door, not even see a face. Uh, sometimes you have no control over your lights, no access to fresh air. And I spoke with Professor Lisa Kerr to help us understand or make more sense of how solitary confinement actually works in Canada. My name is Lisa Kerr, and I'm an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at Queen's University. And I teach courses in criminal law, sentencing, and prison law. Lisa, so I was wondering if you could... Give us a short overview of the state of solitary use in prisons across Canada right now. For example, how often it's being used, on whom, and for what reasons. Sure. So I'll speak about the federal system. And if we want to turn to provincial later, we can. In the federal system, there are two kinds of segregation that can be imposed on inmates. And one is called disciplinary segregation in the legislation. And that's where an inmate breaks a prison rule and they get a hearing, they get access to counsel, they go in front of an independent judge. And one of the sanctions they face can be time in segregation. So that's the disciplinary system. The administrative segregation system is the other kind of solitary, and that's really what the heart of the human rights movement around inmate isolation has been focused on in Canada. With administrative segregation, there's far fewer protections than with the disciplinary system. So 
you can be placed in administrative segregation for really general reasons, like the safety and security of the institution. It's not for doing a specific thing wrong, but it's you know what they may be worried about with respect to your your conduct. There are also no time limits on this practice. There's also no hearing where you have access to counsel. There's also no independent decision maker, someone who's not a prison employee, coming in to oversee things. So the administrative segregation system is where the vast majority of isolated inmates are held. Okay, wait, D, before we go any further, could we just go back to the beginning for a second, like, like all the way back? Like way, way back? Well, or to the beginning of solitary. Yes. Well, it dates very far back to the first Penitentiary Act in 1834 and the opening of the Kingston Pen in Ontario in 1835. And what was the logic or, or, or intention behind it at that time? Oh, well, here's what Lisa told me. So if we look at the sort of rise of the modern penitentiary in the late 18th, 19th century in, in North America, solitary had a very different logic Um, It was thought to be rehabilitative. You know, there was a sort of Quaker ethos that governed these institutions during these historical periods. And the idea was that if an inmate was isolated, was separated, was forced to be quiet, that they would contemplate their wrongs, that they would achieve a redemption, they would gain insight, they would commune with God. And this will enable them to return to to the social fold in a healthy reformed way. Now, people were very harmed by this level of isolation. Um, You have a U.S. Supreme Court case called Inri Medley that's always cited, always talked about. It was decided in 1890. And there the court saw that people in this form of extreme isolation, you know, lost their minds, became very ill, and often never recovered from the condition that this isolation left them in. And Kingston Penitentiary practiced this form of isolation as well. In the early 20th century, certainly in the United States, and it seems in Canada as well, the practice was less prevalent. Then in the United States in the 1970s and 80s, with the rise of the prison population, you see then the U.S. states and the federal system relying more on solitary as a way to manage institutions that were under great pressure. And so there's this new managerial ethos in the 1970s and 80s that really kicks in in terms of prison management. Yeah. Has solitary confinement ever actually achieved its aim? So, well, you have to be very careful about what you say its aim is. If you think that the purpose of it is, as some prison administrators would say, to separate inmates from the general population and thereby control people and ensure non-contact between certain inmates, it probably achieves that. Right. Okay, I'm hearing the terms segregation and solitary confinement being used interchangeably. Are those just two words that mean the same thing? So I had the same question too, and this is what Lisa told me. This is a point that's been much debated between prisoner advocates and the Correctional Service of Canada. So... The Correctional Service of Canada has long maintained we don't have solitary confinement in Canada. That's an American thing, they say, right? We don't do the um, sensory deprivation, the 24 hours with the lights on kind of business that, you know, we think American supermax prisons do. And they say solitary confinement isn't something we're allowed to do in our legislation. All our legislation refers to is administrative segregation. 
And prisoner advocates have said, well, this is a matter of semantics. You might not keep the lights on 24 hours a day, although there have been cases of that in Canada. But, you know, the social isolation, the sensory deprivation, the lack of access to programming, the 23 hours a day spent locked inside a cell, um, you do all of those things when you administratively segregate. And so we're going to call it solitary. Um, you know, I personally, I don't really care what we call it, you know, but these recent decisions in BC and Ontario, um, both judges in both courts said Canada does practice solitary confinement as that term is understood and set out in international law in relevant human rights documents. So that issue is that debate is kind of behind us now, but I think you can use either segregation or solitary. Would you be able to touch on the, the provincial use of solitary in Ontario? I think in recent years, we're really just learning about what's going on with solitary in our provincial systems. So as bad as the federal system has been, the provincial systems are well known to be worse. There's a few reasons for that. One is the legislation that governs provincial corrections. It's typically really bad legislation. It's, it's skeletal, generally. It's short. It doesn't set out that much. It doesn't limit what corrections can do. That's part of why we've seen cases arise in Ontario where there's real abuses of segregation. And we saw that, of course, in Adam Cape's case, where he's segregated for years while awaiting trial um, with those lights turned on 24 hours a day, um, very inhumane conditions of confinement, and seemingly no one in corrections, you know, finding this to be a problem until an external observer came in and, and saw what was going on. You know, the other issue with provincial is that these are very difficult institutions to manage. There's no question. The population is, is much more unsettled than in a federal penitentiary. And that's partly because you have a whole bunch of remanded prisoners who are awaiting trial. They could be a real mix of people, right? There could be people in there on very minor criminal charges. And in fact, there could be many people who will wind up being acquitted or where charges will be withdrawn. And then, of course, there's also people who are accused of very serious crimes who will wind up pleading guilty or being convicted. And so managing that kind of a mix is difficult uh, for jail administrators. You know, I think a common misconception or disconnect when it comes to how so many of us understand solitary confinement is that we think that it's a practice reserved for the worst people you can imagine, you know, the, the violent people. But to me, it sounds like often these are just vulnerable people. Right. I mean, in 2016, it was found that nearly half of people in solitary across Canada were listed as having untreated mental health needs. Yeah. And something that's baffling to me is I'm looking at the at the numbers on the level of solitary use in Ontario for 10 years from 2005 to 2015. And it looks like the use of solitary confinement has increased every year. And over this decade, the number of total incarcerated people has gone down. And in Ontario, our total crime rate has been dropping and our total incarceration rate has been dropping, but the use of solitary is increasing. So there's something going on that is specific to solitary, and I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. That question is what led me to speak with Chris Jackal. Chris is a correctional officer who works in the solitary confinement unit at a maximum security prison in Ontario. This is going to be interesting.
Chris, what led you to do the work that you do today? Well, I've been a correctional officer for uh, almost 24 years. I uh, began my career in Sudbury in a young offender facility. Uh, I think my interest uh, back then was had an interest in uh, incarcerates. I wanted to see if there was an opportunity to elicit some type of change in um, some of their behaviors. My current institution is uh, Central North Correctional Center in Penetanguishene, Ontario, and I've been there for about 12 years. And so that's in the Ontario system, it's not federal? That's provincial corrections, yes. Can you describe the prison that you work in? Uh, Central North uh, has six main living units, adult male, two of which are uh, for remanded offenders. And then the other three units are sentenced for sentenced male offenders. We also have a female unit, and then we have a segregation unit. How long have you been working in the solitary confinement unit? I believe it's been about six years now. Okay. Um, do you remember what your first day on the job was like working in that unit? It's sort of like every other day. They kind of meld together. Um I think about six years ago, more of the offenders back then were segregated for, for behavior, for misconduct reasons. And I think since that time, there's been a slight shift where more, more of those people have mental health issues or they are there on their own request. The Ontario, Ontario Ministry of Corrections has a policy where an inmate can request to be segregated. And what are the typical reasons that someone would request to be in solitary? Uh, well, they don't have to give a reason, number one. So a lot of times we, we were simply not aware. Uh, sometimes the reason is uh, that they fear for their safety. Other times, which is a, a phenomenon in, in maybe the last year, they are seeking to segregate themselves just so that they have continual access to showers, phone calls, reading material, that kind of stuff. So what are, other than self-selecting into solitary, what are the reasons that someone gets put there? Uh, well, a good percentage of them is for, for mental health reasons. Either the inmate asks to go to segregation because they, they themselves know that they have mental health issues and they simply can't cope on a, on a living unit, or the institution itself uh, exercises their, I guess, right and, and places them in there for their own protection. Placing someone with mental health issues, significant mental health issues, in segregation isn't always an optimum idea. I've seen a lot of people sort of get worse by being segregated. However, in the, in the current correctional system, there are no alternatives. Okay. Um, what kind of like level of behavior is required for the category of people who are kind of a danger to other people or a danger to themselves? How bad does the baby have to get for solitary to be considered? Well, a lot of that's sort of at the discretion of the correctional officer. There, there are, within the Ministry of Correctional Services Act, there are, are legislated behaviors, which the government considers to be a breaches. Uh, generally speaking, anything that involves violence, so any type of assault, whether it's inmate on inmate, inmate on staff, uh, that individual will be placed in segregation. Uh, there are other things that... An individual may be placed in segregation, for instance, like gross gross insult. Gross insult is, um, you know, an inmate you know, being belligerent to me. Okay. And do things like this, like when you have a belligerent person, they're put in solitary, when they come out, are they less belligerent? 
Um, historically, I mean, yes, I've seen a lot of that times. I mean, it's um, for for lack of a better word, it, it's it's an opportunity where they they just kind of um, I can see the bigger picture, I guess. Wow, I guess it never really occurred to me before that these decisions are not made in front of a court of law. Yeah, it seems from a due process perspective to be very strange to me. People who are in administrative segregation are actually never sent to solitary by a judge. And the decision to put someone in solitary is made after they've already been incarcerated, after they're in prison. So it's a decision that's made by correctional staff. Chris, what would you say is the goal of solitary? Like when you put someone in solitary, what are you hoping will happen when they get out? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know if I have the answer. Historically, the, the mandate of solitary confinement was for just disciplinary reasons or, or, or punitive measures. That action would act as a deterrent to his future behavior and other people's behavior. Okay. And uh, I think for, the, for a large part, that was, it was effective. It was, an, it was an effective strategy. Well, that's really interesting because both of our guests have different interpretations of the, the historical mandate of solitary confinement. I'd like to lay a lot of blame to the, the mid-90s when the government of the time closed a lot of our mental health facilities. And I think uh, over time, what we've seen is more and more people entering the judicial system. I think what this government has done, or the last few governments have done, really, is they've criminalized mental health. You know, as more and more of these people have entered the system, that's placed stresses on the, situ- on, on the system, and no one ever really had a clear answer of what to do with these people. So by default, place them in segregation. So I want to make sure I understand where you're coming from. So you would say that solitary confinement, something that you say was intended to be a punitive measure, is now being used to protect some people. So some people are being taken out of GenPOP for their own safety by being placed into something that has historically been used as punishment. Uh, I would say that would be a correct statement, yeah. This whole notion of protection, you know, protecting people by putting them in solitary confinement is a perspective I'd never heard before. Me neither, but it seems to be a big element of how the corrections community talks about solitary. And it's something I brought up with Lisa as well. Lisa, I'm reading something here that's written by Jason Godin, who's the president of the National Union representing federal correctional officers. And he says that administrative segregation, in our opinion, has probably saved more lives than I could possibly count. It's an extremely valuable tool to manage the most difficult populations. We use it as a way to protect inmates and staff. I think there's a quasi-legitimate position to take that it's an effective way to manage inmates in the short term in the sense that it's an easy tool for correctional officers, you know, who are doing difficult jobs with few resources. And I get that. I get that correctional officers would say, listen, I need to be able to do that. And you, outsider human rights lawyer, you have no idea what we're dealing with. Now, there's a few things to say in response to that. You know, number one, fine, why do you need to do it for longer than a few days? If you say that you know everything about corrections and we don't, you know, then use your knowledge that you have 
to resolve a situation, to, to achieve an alternative. I presume that Mr. Godin has been inside some of the segregation units in Canada and that he knows, just as the rest of us can imagine, that these cells and these conditions and this level of isolation is not helpful to anyone's well-being, to their future prospects, to their mentality, to their sense of dignity. It is not helpful. There's nothing helpful being offered to them while they're in administrative segregation. And many of these people you know, have very little resilience and had health issues going into it. And in fact, sometimes that's why they're in segregation because they're you know, having so many difficulties in the general population. So we segregate them. Are their difficulties likely to lessen when all the medical evidence tells us that a lack of meaningful opportunity is like the worst thing to do to someone who, for example, has you know, FASD or a mental health issue? Um, you no, know, you need more intervention, more support, more contact. And, you know, there's a lot of accepted evidence from the BC decision about how, you know, the daily contact with a correctional officer or with a nurse or even a psychologist would happen for a matter of minutes through a food slot without the door even being opened, with no eye contact, with the inmate struggling to hear. I'm not a psychologist, but I am a human being and I know what that would be like, and whether that would make me better off or worse off. Chris, I want to go back to something you mentioned before. Not having an alternative for dealing with individuals who are suffering from mental health issues while being incarcerated. What would you like to see as alternatives? You know, as someone who's been in the system for a while, what do you think are some alternatives that could be implemented? One of the first things I'd like to see is more investment, really, in the community. Uh, Whether it's... um, mental health hospitals, whether it's uh, group homes, whether it's drop-in centers, uh, whatever. Um, I am not an expert in that field. But I believe if there was investment in the the community for the individual there at that time, the the likelihood of them probably committing a crime would probably decrease. Right. They wouldn't end up in prison in the first place. Then there you go. Right. So there was... uh, that's that's the big big piece of the puzzle, I think, because they really just don't belong in jail. A lot of them just don't belong in jail. Right. Um, and then I think the second part is an investment in in corrections itself. Corrections has long been a neglected ministry. It's simply not politically friendly to invest money. General consensus amongst the public is once that individual is arrested and detained, nobody really cares anymore. So when it comes to investment, nobody wants to see dollars being thrown into the Ministry of Corrections. I would like to see correctional officers be given bona fide training in mental health, where we, because we are generally seen as that front line, so where we could uh, assist in uh, de-escalating, managing uh, their behavior so that the whole team could could work together. I mean, these all sound like things that would help us as a society generally, because, um, you know, I have a master's in criminology, and to me, one of the main parts of imprisonment and incarceration is rehabilitation, right? And in an ideal world, we want people to to go into prison and to come out and to um, not become reoffenders and to be able to reintegrate into society in a more positive way. And it sounds like a lot of things you're proposing would 
further that mission. Would you would you agree with that? Well, I, I think a sound correctional system um, relies relies on on different elements. They they should rely on rehabilitative measures, but the other side to a correctional system, there's there should be an element of punishment. I mean, by virtue of being in a prison and having your liberty taken away, is that not a form of punishment in itself? To a degree. To a degree for some people, maybe. How have you seen solitary confinement affect people? What have you observed? I've seen some of them do quite well and just flourish, and and they're fine for months and months and months, and it seems to be nothing to them. Others I've seen that uh, you know, they struggle within a few weeks. They they become a little bit different, a little more reclusive. You know, they come out of their cells. How are guards trained to deal with mental health right now? When a when a correctional officer enters the system, as, as a new recruit, he's afforded a few hours of mental health training in in his or her correctional officer training program. And the last I sort of looked at that stuff, it just sort of dealt with defining the different illnesses. So just defined what schizophrenia was and defined what manic depression was. And and that's all useful, don't get me wrong, but that's really sort of where it ends. We need the, the skills to be able to determine, is this person you know mentally ill or is he simply being hostile? So you often use a hashtag, crisis and corrections. I went to your Twitter. Yes. (laughs) Can I get you to explain what that means to you and what you use it to signify? Well, crisis and corrections is a sort of a grassroots movement, uh, essentially, that that started several years ago. We went through a period of the three-year hiring freeze. So in that time, no one was hired. However... People retired, people quit, people left. Uh, so our staffing levels just dropped dramatically. And that created huge problems. We've seen lockdowns, and most of our institutions were locked down, sometimes days at a time or every second day. And then that, that spiraled into other problems where now the attention of the inmate population was through the roof. They became extremely violent, extremely belligerent, so we saw instances, situations where we have staff members assaulted on an almost daily basis across this province. And that, that's unheard of. That's an un, uh, that statistic is, is through the roof. So what do you think is driving the increased violence it, that you see? Well, I, I think a big part of it is this segregation reform. With the, with the reforms to segregation, correctional staff no longer have access to using segregation as a form of deterrent. Uh, this is it's extremely common where segregations are full. They're full with people who have their own requests or they're full with people who have mental health issues. The general inmate population now knows this. And now they know that there is no beds available. So they have become much more violent. It's constant violence. And we've been told this. You can't bring me to the hole. You got no room today. I know you got no room. You can't bring me to the hole. What are you going to do? And they walk away. So we don't have that mechanism anymore, which we used to have. We used to have that as a, as a, as a deterrent or a threat or an option. And, and that, that's, by and large, it's gone. I, I am not a segregation abolitionist. Uh, there, there is a need for it. I've asked numerous times, if you're going to remove this tool for correctional staff to use, what are you giving in its place? 
Well, Chris, I want to thank you for chatting with me and sharing your perspective and experience. Well, thank you for having me. You know, he seems to make the claim that a decreased use of solitary is directly related to an increased amount of violence in prison, right? So is this true? And do we have data on this? I hope you asked Lisa about this, too. Come on, of course I did. Let me, let me put it in a bit more historical perspective. From 2005 to 2015, our use of solitary went up. And it went up particularly for black inmates, for indigenous inmates, um, and it actually went down a little bit for Caucasian inmates. Then in 2015, after all kinds of media intention and the Ashley Smith coroner's inquest recommendations and litigation all over the country, the number of people who are officially in administrative segregation was cut in half over a two-year period. What's important about that to me is that it shows that for the preceding years, decades, when CSC said that it only used segregation when absolutely necessary and as a measure of last resort, and that it couldn't possibly do anything different or else it would put the entire institution at risk, that those statements were all hyperbole. Then there has been an uptick in some categories on indicators of prison violence, you know, inmate on inmate assaults, inmate on staff. You know, to me, this is not surprising. It's often the case, especially in criminal justice reform, that you look at a policy problem and then you say, what should replace it? And then you replace it and you expect that the effects of the pre-existing policy problem are just going to disappear overnight. They're not. There's going to be a period of transition. You know, if you believe that solitary causes harm, makes it more difficult for people to reintegrate into the population, it makes perfect sense that that reintegration is going to be difficult. So you can't just say, oh, here's a new policy regime and then say, what's wrong with this new policy regime? Because it didn't immediately eliminate the effects of the pre-existing bad regime. Do you think there's the appetite, the budget, funding to move towards more of a model of rehabilitation as opposed to punishment? Yeah, so, I mean, rehabilitation is a story that we've told really since the birth of the modern penitentiary, that we're going to achieve something by sending someone to a locked facility, and that inside this facility, we're going to treat them in particular ways, offer them particular programs, discipline them, reform them. The evidence that that has ever been what prisons actually do, you know, is pretty thin. Do correctional officers and wardens and other officials in our system continue to think that that is their mission? Yes. If you look at the United States, there are many prison systems that since the 1970s and 80s, we don't even say the word rehabilitation anymore. The logic of rehabilitation and the faith in its possibilities had totally collapsed in the United States. You know, I'm sure it still persists somewhat inside prison systems, but publicly, that really they decided as a society that isn't what we're going to try to do anymore. We're going to just try to achieve separation, incapacitation, and deterrence. And, you know, in Canada, those purposes of punishment are also part of our system. We're allowed to send people to prison for those reasons. That's set out in the criminal code. But I do think our correctional officers and and prison staff still think rehabilitation is what they're up to. And that's important. And as advocates, we should always point to that. And we should say, you know, if that's what you think you're doing, then we need to do better. The penitentiary has always been the place that we will go to make people better, 
And I think we all know just from our own lives how difficult it is to become better. And you know that we have to do a lot of therapy and self-reflection and work on ourselves and really, you know, read and grow and be surrounded by great people to really figure our lives out. And that's not really the context of a prison. And so it's interesting. In a way, I think we should stop fantasizing about prisons as rehabilitative. And then in a way, I think that we should continue to seize that logic when trying to advance and improve conditions of confinement. This declaration has been made that certain provisions in corrections legislation are unconstitutional. So can you describe what this will actually mean in practice? You know, what's really going to change? Sure. So there are two cases that were filed and litigated. The BC case, which was filed by the BC Civil Liberties Association and the John Howard Society of Canada. They filed pleadings. They attacked this regime on the basis of Section 7, 12, and 15 of the Charter. So those are the rights to liberty and security of the person, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment and equality rights. So the equality claim was advanced on behalf of indigenous inmates and women inmates who are disproportionately burdened by segregation. So that was the BC claim. It was very comprehensive. And there's a lot to say about the different parts in the BC decision. Um, The Ontario decision was much more narrowly construed. And as a result, it generated a judgment that's, that's fairly narrow. So there are kind of three things that the two judgments have in common. Um, Both courts rejected this position from corrections that they don't use solitary. Both courts said, you know, you do. Um, Both courts found that solitary can have severe effects on mental health. And both declare that these rules I described earlier governing the use of administrative segregation are arbitrary and unfair, and they were struck down But there's way more differences between these two decisions than similarities. And I think the biggest one is on this issue of who gets to make the decision to segregate. The Ontario judgment, all it said was that the warden shouldn't be reviewing her own decision, that that was too unfair. And so there needs to be someone else reviewing that decision. But the judge said it could be someone who's employed by the Correctional Service of Canada. Um, And that part of the judgment, it's really short. It's only six paragraphs long. And there's really not much reasoning in it. The BC decision on this issue of whether that decision maker, that reviewer, had to be independent from the prison service, that part of the BC decision is 14 pages long. It's 54 paragraphs. And it's all about the history of calls for independent oversight and why the culture of prison officials and their solidarity with one another Um, requires a truly independent check. The BC court also speaks about the burden on Indigenous inmates. That's not even a topic in the Ontario decisions. That evidence wasn't put before the judge in Ontario. You know, the right to legal limits on solitary confinement is an issue of equality for Indigenous people. And, And the BC judgment spends a lot of time talking about that and really reminds our federal government that this is a matter of Indigenous rights. Dee, I read that these rulings on segregation reform will actually take a year at least to implement. Why, why isn't this happening immediately? Good question. Here's Lisa. So for a year, the current laws, notwithstanding their constitutional infirmities, uh, will remain the law. 
the court did grant the government's request to have this year um, in order to redraft the laws. There's going to be appeals, and if the appeals aren't decided within this year, then the government will ask the courts of appeal for an extension. You know, and some people are very critical of the federal government for this. They say, you've already committed to implementing the Ashley Smith inquest recommendations. Why haven't you done that? Why are you fighting this litigation? Why are you appealing? Just reform the laws. But, you know, it can be very important to get a case from the Supreme Court of Canada, and it can be very important to make sure that Corrections understands these issues and learns from the litigation, you know, and hears the evidence about the harms of this practice, because we really need correctional officers to understand that this is not helpful, that it's not achieving even their own goals of safety and security. And so they're neat, you know, I'm actually, I'm not critical a little bit of this litigation process in terms of the government's involvement, because it's actually an important process to sometimes go through litigation and to hear from those experts. And oftentimes we canvass more evidence in a trial court than we would at a parliamentary hearing. What kind of change can we anticipate from this? If the BC decision leads the way, there will be time limits, there will be protections for the mentally ill, there will be independent review, there will be access to counsel. All of those things will create, I think, reduced numbers, shorter stays, and, um, you know, more procedural fairness and, and, you know, all of that. I do think that a great deal of important change has already happened. I, I have to say it was really, it was the death of Ashley Smith. Her experience really sparked a national conversation about this practice. And, um, you know, I think we all saw in her case and because of all the video footage that came out, what a wildly inappropriate way this was to treat someone who needed assistance. You know, I think that mobilized media attention and litigation attention. And, um, you know, and it happened, of course, alongside a a U.S.-based conversation about supermax prisons and so on. So, you know, and I think because of that cultural conversation and transformation that's already happened, Corrections finally got the message and finally looked at their practice and said, who's in these cells? Do they really need to be here? And they did manage to already reduce at least some of this practice. So things are heading in the right direction. But, you know, these fights are very, they're long. They require a lot of repetition. Thank you, Lisa. I got to say those were, that was probably one of the best sets of questions I've ever, I've ever had on this topic. That is our Commons episode for this week. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Before we say goodbye today, we want to make an acknowledgement. There are voices missing from today's episode, and that's why we're doing a two-part series. We need to talk with people that have experienced solitary confinement, and we need to get inside the stories of how that has impacted their lives. That's coming up in the next episode of Commons. We want to hear from you. Tweet at us at Canadaland Commons. That's C M N S at the end. This episode is produced by Abby Madon. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, you know where to find us. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.